Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports, History and Today. Conversations with top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we will speak with Chris McGreal, the author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. This is his second book. He's a writer for The Guardian who has covered the Rwandan genocide and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's also based here in the United States now. So first of all, thanks for uh, joining us, Mr. McGreal. Thanks, Evan. Good talking to you. Yeah, um, you know, this book is so important because the opioid crisis has emerged as maybe the biggest threat to health in America, maybe right alongside cigarettes and car accidents. Uh, Just recently, the average life expectancy overall dropped partially because of how many lives opioids have taken. 128 people die each day from overdoses, which is 47,000 a year. For comparison, 38,000 people die in car crashes and about 40,000 die in shootings. So more are dying in opioid overdoses. Um, And while this crisis got plenty of press in the mid-2010s, coverage has waned. So my first question to ask Chris, if I may call you Chris, uh, is why do you think that is? Uh, Coverage has always been quite spotty. This is an epidemic that's gone on for more than two decades. And one of the things that was surprising to me when I was researching the book and really leapt out at me was, you know, how could an epidemic run on for more than a decade before anybody really started talking about it? It began in the late 1990s. And you don't really see until the 2010s that this starts to become part of the national consciousness. But in the very late and a few years of the 2000s, actually there was quite a lot of press coverage, some very good press coverage, particularly in local and regional newspapers, of the impact of opioids, particularly OxyContin, uh, and the, the surging numbers of deaths. Um, and so the New York Times did some co- very good reporting. So do you know why the coverage um, has slowed down over the last few years? I think it slowed down twice. It slowed down in the 2000s, and I think that was partly because... Uh, the industry changed the conversation and that's an important part of of this whole uh, rise of uh, opioids and they they essentially uh, made out that people who were becoming addicted were simply addicts and we could dismiss them um, and i think perhaps more recently we've seen a rise in consciousness of it but i think part of it is actually who's been dying and i think that for a very long time in this country the principal uh, victims of opioid overdoses were from relatively marginalized communities, particularly communities in Appalachia, uh, working class communities in New England, um, and they were perhaps less visible or more likely to be uh, blamed for their own addiction and death. Um, and then I, and then very mo- much more recently, we've seen the transition from it being uh, a prescription opioid uh, a crisis into much more of an Ill- illegal drug crisis, opioid crisis, with the rise of heroin and fentanyl. And again, I think that brings judgments about uh, who, th- who the people are that become addicted and die. And I think that allows people to turn their backs. Yeah, and I, we're definitely going to talk more about that because it's so important. But uh, first of all, I want to go back to the beginning because one of the reasons I love your book is that it strips away the headlines and roots the problem essentially, in greedy people in impoverished areas. And your book opens with a, a sort of a vignette of a, a, a description of a man named Henry Vinson. Um, and the chapter is called The Undertaker, um, which I guess would is a, a bit of foreshadowing there. But he was an undertaker turned pimp turned doctor's office assistant who had a nose for 
where money was to be made. Explain what he notices about painkillers and when. Well, he's recently released from prison. He served uh, four years or so in federal prison for running a, a prostitution ring in Washington, D.C. And he's back in West Virginia, southern West Virginia, which is where he's from. And he's working in a doctor's office there as part of his probation. Now, and about, he noticed, just real quick, about what year are we talking about here? We're talking about the um, uh, into the 2000s here. Okay. The late so 90s, ahead. early 2000s. Yeah. And... Um, and what he notices in, in the late 90s is that there's a lot of people coming into this doctor's office for opioid prescriptions. And what he understands is that actually uh, low-level opioids um, have become a kind of substitute for other forms of pain relief, particularly amongst those who are uh, working on the mines or uh, doing jobs that take a lot of physical toll on their bodies and the elderly. Um, and he realizes there's money in this. And what Henry Vinson essentially does is he sets up a, uh, his mother owns a warehouse, an abandoned warehouse. He sets up a bunch of doctors to do nothing but write prescriptions for opioids for anybody who wants them in this uh, old abandoned warehouse in this small town in, of, of about 3,000 people in West Virginia. And the first doctor he recruits to uh, write prescriptions is um, happened to have been the physician who was the uh, the doctor in the federal that he's just been released from. So he gets him on board. He gets on board uh, a couple of other doctors who have very dodgy pasts, who've uh, lost their licenses in other states, um, have been prosecuted in one case for fraud and, these um, are and bribery. Who, th- these are people who are just willing to to sit there and have patients walk in, say, oh my gosh, my back hurts. Um, I, I need painkillers, and they go, sure. Yes, it's just, it's just a, it's what's known as a pill mill. It became known as a pill mill. And, and that's exactly right. Anybody who asks for them gets them. And really, there's no proper medical consultation that takes place. There's, there's the fiction of it for the purposes of paperwork. Um, but the key to all of this is, of course, that the patients pay cash. They pay $150 yeah, for I a Yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, so it's 250 bucks for the first visit, 150 for each additional visit. And then the money starts to roll in so fast because they're, they're writing these prescriptions. The money is rolling in so fast that they need to get a bill counter to count it. I mean, have, have, does, has anyone you know ever needed a bill counter to count their money? No, and in fact, it, the whole place... In- a bit like a casino where there was so much money coming in they had a tube that they would stuff the money down it would run down to where they had the bill counter and the 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 person in charge of the money and they would just stack up the dollars um and it became so busy that they end up recruiting more and more doctors till he's got about four or five uh, depending on which year you're talking about um at one time uh, writing prescriptions and then uh they get so busy i mean the lines form before they even up at eight in the morning but at six in the morning there would be a couple of hundred people outside uh this what was known as the williamson wellness clinic waiting to uh, get their prescriptions and they were you know as word spread they came from wide from tennessee and from ohio uh, because this was an easy place what are these people seeking i mean they, they are seeking something that is so deep in their core here they they need this feeling of relief um just from the interviews you've done Explain what these folks who are lining up for hours on end, what in the world they're looking for here. So what you see is that there's a couple of types of patients. Um, 
one is a patient who begins taking opioids because they get a, a legitimate prescription um, and they become addicted to these uh, drugs. And that's because these drugs were being pushed very, very heavily for all types of pain relief and the dangers from them were being deliberately played down by the drug industry. And so people started taking these drugs, prescribed them for relatively routine pain, back pain, um, you know, they might, they might have broken their arm, um, but they're being given quite large quantities. And some of those people, significant number, become hooked. And then over time, the thing about opioids is in order to uh, stave off the pain and eventually to also stave off withdrawal if you become hooked, you need ever-increasing doses of the drug. And eventually... Like working out. Exactly. Exactly. And eventually what happens is that people end up turning uh, away from their regular doctors who won't, in the end, uh, prescribe in the sheer numbers that they need and going to places like pill mills, which don't ask any questions. Or alternatively, they come because they're doing something that's known as doctor shopping, which means that they're going to lots of different doctors and getting prescriptions. And because the doctors don't check with each other, they can pile up. But they need more and more pills. So that, that's one group of, of people who begin on a legitimate prescription. And then there was this other group of people who either did it for recreational purposes or just took the drugs because, like I say, word had spread, for instance, on the mines that uh, this was very good pain relief if you're working down the mines. used to be other people, you know, in times past would use other forms of pain relief. Marijuana had been very popular as well. Um, but because that was an illicit drug and you could be tested for it and lose your job, prescription opioids became very popular because uh, it didn't matter if you were tested positive for it as long as you could waive a prescription. Those people, some of them were just were fine with it, actually. They, they could handle it. But uh, I've spoken to a lot of uh, people. Willis, a man called Willis Duncan's an example, you know, who begins taking these drugs. Um, uh, he's a miner, an electrician on the mines in West Virginia, and he begins taking these drugs uh, for, for pain relief on the mines. Then he hurts himself. And because he's already got low levels of opioid tolerance, in order to uh, get genuine pain relief after he cracks his ribs and things, um, he, uh, he has to take really large doses and then he becomes seriously hooked. Mm-hmm. How terrible. Um, uh, so how does Big Pharma get involved? Um, and when and how does... You know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm melting these two stories together a little bit too much, but explain how Big Pharma gets involved and then also how OxyContin gets approved. So those two things actually do go hand in hand. So what you see through the late 80s and early 90s, there are a couple of things at work. One of which is there's a group of doctors who are very well-meaning who say to themselves, you know, we, can't, we need to find better pain relief for people that are living with chronic pain. Uh, you know, people who've got arthritis, who've got persistent back pain, it was very frustrated to them as pain specialists that they couldn't do more for those people. And opioids were really a bit of a no-no. Uh, um, they were only used uh, for post-operative pain, for instance, and in very controlled conditions. And that's because after the Civil War, um, there was a uh, there was an opioid, opioid epidemic in America. Um, with the spread of, uh, of opiates, uh, which began essentially with wounded soldiers in the Civil War and had become a full-blown epidemic by the early uh, 20th century. So after that 
they were access to them was greatly restricted even through the medical profession. But what you see in the 1960s is the rise in Britain of the hospice movement and the use of opiates to uh, relieve pain in people who are dying, for instance, end-of-life care for cancer. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about addiction if somebody's dying of cancer. Right, right. And the doctors in America, as the hospice movement comes over to America, says, well, if we can use it for the dying. Why can't we use it for people who are living with chronic pain? And they, they begin to push back against the idea that actually opioids are so addictive that they can't be used in, in everyday circumstances. And that's like- when the drug companies leap in. They see an opportunity. You know, it seems like a relatively benign and reasonable question. Um, was that question asked earnestly or with the idea that we could get people hooked? Well, this is the key here, is that a group of doctors, led in particular by one called Russell Portnoy, who simply since basically backtracked, um, they pushed the idea that there was an unreasonable stigma around the use of opioids by the medical profession, and they were determined to break that down. And in that determination, instead of looking honestly at the evidence of the risk of addiction, they essentially latched onto uh, a mix of very loose uh, uh, and small studies uh, and over overstated what they claim to represent. For instance, there's, there's a study of a, a very few number of patients in a hospital setting that became quite infamous, and that was used to extrapolate and say 90% of patients don't become addicted, but actually that wasn't true. Um, through to science, which was another doctor, um, a man called Haddox, uh, who pushed the idea that, in fact, what looks like addiction isn't addiction, it's merely um, the pain speaking, and you have to give people uh, more, uh, and higher strength drugs if, if, they, um, if they look like uh, they're addicted. Um, so what, what you see is they create a narrative which says, actually, there are no risks around these drugs if they're being used to treat pain. And they push that. And then anybody who raises questions around the risks of addiction, they dismiss them as, um, as uh, being a stigma um, and un- uh, uh, what they characterize an unreasoned stigma around opioids. And they, they really push that. Now, Portnoy has since backtracked and said that he overstated the evidence for their safety and lack of addiction. And he's admitted that um, what he was trying to do was to open the door to wider use of opioids. It, it, what it was you see almost, is the drug companies leap in and take that evidence. It, it was almost unbelievable to read in your book that sales reps distributed coupons to doctors to give them to their patients um, month-long supplies of this drug, along with hats and T-shirts and backpacks and whatever else, company swag, to show off the labels. How was that allowed? Well, what you see is that uh, there's a company called Purdue Pharma, which has become quite notorious, and it invents a very high-strength drug called OxyContin. And basically, it goes to the Food and Drug Administration, and it lies about this drug, and essentially says that this drug is, although it's 10 times to 20 times the amount of opioid of the existing drugs, it says it's safer because you're less likely to get addicted to it uh, because there's a special mechanism which bleeds the drug into your system more slowly. And it's also more effective because you only have to take one or two pills a day instead of eight or ten. Um, and so they get the FDA to endorse this. And 
what then happens is that Purdue Pharma goes out to doctors, particularly doctors already prescribing opioids in places like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. And it says, this is essentially a magic bullet. This, this is the drug. And they, they, they market it as the drug to start with and to stay with. So an astonishingly high power opioid, EA will come to call uh, heroin in a pill, is being given to people as their first painkiller. And, and essentially, they're being told, if they've got something like arthritis or back pain, you would stay on this drug for life. And they go out and they market it in exactly the way that you've said. They go to doctors. And one of the things that was really striking to me in researching this book is that when you talk to doctors about sales reps from a company, who you know, sales reps who are not doctors themselves turning up, is the sales reps were, in effect, educating doctors about pain relief. Doctors get so little training in pain relief in general, but specifically in opioids, a matter of hours in like four years of medical education, that they were learning this stuff from sales reps who I mean, were misrepresenting the information. I mean, this is literally like, you know, like, like, a, like a Pepsi or, or a sales rep or, or a beer sales rep going to a bartender and telling them, hey, don't worry, this beer is the best beer anyone's going to have and here's what it can do for you. And the expertise of the person who's selling it is now out the window. Yeah, and it, it's like the salesman turns up in that bar and says, oh, by the way, here's a paper that says, although this is a very high strength beer, you can't get drunk and you won't become an alcoholic. Oh, <laughs> and it wasn't true. And, right, right, right. But they were pushing that drug. And um, what, um, one of the points you make in the book is that the United States is one of the only countries, if not the only country in the world, that allows medical advertising. Um, I think those of us in the United States who read that will go, you, you mean there's no ads for Tylenol and for, you know, whatever else, uh, whatever other pills are being invented right now? You mean that I, I can watch TV and not see an ad for, you know, uh, the latest and greatest pill to, you know, to stop, uh, uh, you know, to stop arthritis? Yeah. So um, the only other country that allows the advertising of uh, prescription drugs of any kind on television is New Zealand. And I don't know why that is, but in, no other country allows it. And there's, there's an interesting confluence here because the, the year that um, OxyContin comes on the market is the year, 1996-97, that the uh, Food and Drug Administration begins to allow television advertising of drugs. And although OxyContin was never, um, never advertised on the television, doctors are quite interesting about the impact of television advertising on American attitude towards pills. Yeah. And they say that it contributed to this idea of a pill for every ill, that you, you see something on the television, you think, I must have that, and that the cure is a, always a pill. And right. they said, so the Americans' use of, of prescription drugs escalated over the past 20 years or so, 30 years. Yeah, and you, um, write, you write in the book that the expectation is that Americans must live pain-free, and that became true at any cost. Um, and one fascinating question that you pose is, you know, why are we that country that allows medical advertising? Um, and you quote someone as saying one of the only causes of death uh, that was getting more pronounced were opioids. That's right. So there's a there's a uh, a, a doctor who worked for the Centers for Disease Control, and it was his job essentially to look at how people died uh, in America in things other than car accidents. And he was looking at the stats. He he decided to look back over a decade of statistics and. He was really pleased to see that actually all for, almost all forms of death 
were falling. It, um, except he noticed that deaths from drug overdoses were on the way up, and he thought he'd got his figures reserve, reversed, and he was, he'd made a mistake. Um, and then he looked more closely and realized that wasn't true, collected more data, and realized it, the increase was almost all down to opioids. And that was essentially the result of this mass prescribing of opioids. What the, the drug companies do is, is you've got Purdue Pharma kicks it off, but lots of other drug companies then leap on. And the industry as a whole, the opioid manufacturers, push this idea that these drugs, these pills, are the answer to pain, to driving down um, your, uh, pain to zero. Um, and what doctors will tell you is that people will come in for a consultation and they might say to them, oh, well, you know, you need to do more exercise or, uh, you know, you've got diabetes, that's contributing to your pain, you need to do something about your diabetes. And because of this pill for every ill mentality, people didn't want to hear that, patients. What they want to do is uh, get a pill instantly. Nice and, and quick. Nice and quick. And doctors in this country, you know, they're subject to something called patient satisfaction surveys, which have consequences for hospitals and federal fundings. If your patient's not happy with you, it, it, it's more than they just walk out the door unhappy. And doctors came under enormous pressure just to prescribe pills, uh, opioid pills, keep patients happy. Um, and you see through the 2000s, um, the escalation of the prescribing opioids until by 2010, there's 252 million prescriptions for opioids being written uh, every year, which was enough to apply to supply every American adult with somewhere around three weeks or so of, uh, of opioids. Uh, make people happy, not better. And that is the key distinction there. Um, that is a, probably not the right place for doctors to be. Right. And in fairness, I mean, there were obviously some very crooked doctors and there were negligent doctors. But in fairness to the doctors, the industry uh, was, became very influential, led by Purdue Pharma, in creating kind of a medical climate in which there was enormous pressure piled on the doctors to, um, to prescribe these pills. And, and a key part of this was the industry pushed the concept of a, something called pain as the fifth vital sign. So, you know, when you go to the doctor, you get your vital signs like your blood pressure and your, your heart rate tested. Well, you had to be asked about your pain, too. And if, if it was above five to ten, um, then you had to be treated for it. And the treatment by default was opioids. The problem in all of that is that you know, your blood pressure and your heart rate can be measured. Pain is entirely subjective. So all the doctors could do was say to people, how bad is your pain on a scale of one to ten? Is why in... A lot of uh, hospitals, you saw those smiley faces for many years where you would be asked, where, what's your pain level? Um, and that, that piled pressure onto doctors to basically treat pain as pain rather than treating the causes of the pain. Um, yeah. And of course, that treatment was opioid pills because that was what was making the drug makers money. You know, one of the things that um, you then talk about is that there is this turning point, um, the turning point in sort of the fight against the opioids. And um, for those of us who report in Florida, some of that did, much of it did come in Florida. Um, it was for so long where people came to get their drugs from all over the country. The pill mills in Florida, um, you know, were, were uh, attacked, uh, largely shut down in the early 2010s. Um, but your chapter on all this is called The Pushback. Um, so explain what you mean when you write, the opioid makers worried that their efforts to blame the addicted and the dead 
for their conditions were slipping out of their hands. You write that they invented these two entities, legitimate patients and then abusers. Explain all that. So one of the things that, again, had surprised me when I was researching this, I thought to myself, well, why did this go on for so long? Why didn't the medical profession speak up? And, and as I dug in, I discovered that there were actually quite a lot of doctors who did speak up. Uh, one of them was a doctor called Jane Ballantyne, who was the head of pain management at Harvard University and its associated hospital, Massachusetts General. And she'd bought into the idea of just prescribing pills for people in pain. But she saw what was happening to their pa her patients. Some of them became addicted. Others became so dependent on the drugs that it changed their lives completely and they ceased to function properly. And so she started to do a study on this. And she wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003, which essentially said, look, we need to pause this headlong rush towards the use of these drugs and look at them more closely. And at that point, the industry gets alarmed because it thinks, oh, uh, you know, our, our cash cow here that we've, we've arranged um, is, uh, you know, going to be curbed. And so they, they begin to push a narrative, political narrative in Congress uh, of the idea that the people who become addicted and die are, are illegitimate users, that they are abusers. That's the word that's used a lot about them. And that these abusers, um, who we might feel sorry for them, but they are they're drug abusers and therefore they're to blame for their own condition. They shouldn't be allowed to take away these wonderful pills from, quote, the good pain, pain patients and the legitimate pain patients. Of course, what that ignored was many people who, when abused the drugs, actually had been uh, the good or legitimate pain patients to begin with. And then they became so addicted, they started to abuse them. Um, they had been following prescriptions, but the industry was very keen to, to blame the victims and draw that distinction. And for years that worked. That kept open the door to mass prescribing, which is what they wanted to see, that there was no diminishment in access to the drugs. And I guess, um, well, I guess the lie about creating those two sects of people is that they were all lied to by the drug makers and by some of their doctors. Yes, they were. I mean, a, a lot of people, Willis Duncan, for instance, that man I was telling you about in West Virginia, his, his wife became addicted after she had a hysterectomy and was put onto opioids. His son, who was also a minor, became addicted. And uh, his, his wife died first, and then his son overdosed and died. And he was left all on his own, and he still couldn't get off the drugs. And when I asked him, uh, you know, where he placed blame for all of this. The thing he said to me was, nobody ever warned us. Nobody ever told us how dangerous these drugs were. We just got them and we thought it was like popping aspirins. Um, and I think that that was, you know, perhaps the greatest flaw in all is that they were, they were sold as safe and uh, controllable. And in fact, they really weren't. So explain where this pushback um, is right now. Um, uh, explain, you know, I guess what happened in 2016. It became a major political issue there. Donald Trump certainly recognized that it impacted many people who made up parts of his political base, or at least the areas um, that strongly supported him. So it becomes a political issue in 2016. Donald Trump uses it in some ways to, to great benefit. But, you know, considering all that, explain where this pushback is right now. So a couple of things going on. I mean, firstly, the CDC, a lot of federal agencies, including the FDA, dropped the ball. But the CDC 
actually recognized what this was and called it an epidemic. And when it does that, you start to see, particularly Congress sits up, oh, really? And so you, what you see is an attempt to reduce the amount of prescribing and to educate people. And, and that ha has happened. Prescribing has come down. Uh, the pill mills are being closed, as you know, in Florida, but in other places too, um, like West Virginia. Um, and the CDC introduced guidelines, which essentially said to doctors, whatever you do, you don't need to prescribe opioids as the default treatment for pain, as the first treatment for pain. And you certainly shouldn't be prescribing in, in very high dosages, except in uh, certain circumstances. Um, and they were good and smart guidelines, but you actually see the industry pushed back against that. And to this day, they, they managed to get through Congress a kind of oversight of those, political oversight almost, of those, um, of those guidelines to weaken them and water them down. Um, and so the industry is still trying to keep the prescribing going, but there is much greater awareness. There's, there's a lot of doctors who are much more cautious. Um, they are, some doctors are simply refusing to um, uh, to prescribe at all. Others are, are reining back the dosages. And of course, the sad thing about that is that there are people who genuinely need these drugs and for whom they work. Um, it was, it, it was that they should have just been prescribed in much more controlled circumstances to a much more uh, smaller section of the population did rather Oxy than just throwing them out there. Did OxyContin ever pay a price for all this? So OxyContin uh, was finally kind of reformulated in 2010 so that um, it, it essentially wasn't as powerful a drug and it couldn't just be uh, crushed and you couldn't just get a hit from it. Um, and so OxyContin itself, its sales fell quite considerably, but the sales of other drugs continued to rise. Uh, the owners of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, um, were prosecuted in 2007 and were found uh, criminally uh, responsible. They pleaded guilty to criminal charges of, of basically lying in their marketing of the drugs, and three of the executives were convicted too. But they, they went on selling the drug. They didn't go to jail, and the reason they didn't go to jail was because of political pressure. And you see that from across the industries, that the, the federal prosecutor who wanted to actually send them to jail, the, the industry went straight to the Justice Department and got the charges essentially watered down. And Purdue Pharma was able to negotiate a plea deal in which um, it wouldn't be prevented from going on selling the drug. Um, and, you know, you see essentially the sales of, of opioids continue to escalate despite that, that uh, conviction. Now we're at a point where, of course, as, as you probably know, there's, there's a whole lot of civil lawsuits and some... Uh, criminal prosecutions of the companies involved. Uh, bring, yeah, I mean, the, you know, that brings us to this last chapter of your book. It's called Guilt. Um, and you mm -hmm. say in that, in that chapter, those who bear real responsibility for America's national nightmare show no such sense of guilt or torment, um, but victims' families do. So why is guilt such an important concept in studying the impact of opioids? Well, I think one of the things that really frustrates families is that these companies come to one kind of out-of-court settlement after another in which they admit no liability, they admit no guilt. And the executives who got very rich from effectively, you know, as one mayor of Huntington, West Virginia put it to me, you know, acting like drug dealers in Amani suits, they kept all the huge bonuses they made. Um, 
And so I think there's a sense that firstly, nobody's being really held responsible. They're just paying the fines, buying their way out of accountability. And the other thing is that it means that real lessons are being learned and that this could all happen again with another drug um, if, there's, if there's no real responsibility. Um, and I think also those parents particularly um, and those spouses and, and others who saw their loved one, they carry that guilt um, because perhaps they didn't recognize the risk of addiction, you know, particularly people whose children were given these drugs. And they, they say, why did I allow the doctor to prescribe these drugs to my son or daughter? Um, killed them. And they carry that guilt. And I think that guilt is perhaps made worse by the fact that there's no admission of responsibility uh, by those who really made uh, this epidemic possible because it's not the parents who are guilty they were just following medical advice but they live with the fact that their actions um, you know children's their lives it's a uniquely american type of guilt if that's what we're talking about here yes and it's a uniquely american epidemic actually um, you don't see this epidemic in other countries in the world and i think one of the reasons that all of this happened and it's uniquely American is that in America, you know, public health isn't really a service, it's an industry. And in the end, this was not about what was good for the public health and good for patients. It was about what was good for the body of a very powerful company. Chris McGreal, the author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating and enlightening discussion. Um, I would say, uh, uh, let's hope you don't have to write a second volume of this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to be learned. Thanks um, very much. Yeah, certainly check out that book and then check him out also on Twitter. Um, he's at Chris McGreal. That's uh, C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-E-A-L. Uh, thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today conversations with top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those accounts with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.